Coming up on this episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. About 90 million people in the U.S. have fatty liver disease. It's increasing worldwide, the amount of fatty liver we are seeing. If you're a healthcare provider practicing functional medicine, you know how hard it can be to keep up to date with all the specialty lab tests that are available to you. Well, I have a solution for you. Rupa University. Over 20,000 practitioners go through Rupa University courses each year to learn from industry experts about specialty tests like GI Map, Dutch Complete, Organic Acids, and many others. And the best part is all their courses are completely free. Every week, they host free live classes. And then if you want to dive deeper into a specific topic, you can attend a paid six-week boot camp. So if you're a healthcare provider who wants to learn more about functional medicine and testing, you owe it to yourself to go check it out today. Go to rupauniversity.com to sign up for a free live class or boot camp. In my over three decades of practicing functional medicine, I've learned a few things. Take old age, for example. Aging has long been considered a normal process. We used to think disease, frailty, gradual decline were just inevitable parts of life. But it turns out they're not. The negative health effects of aging are actually treatable. If you understand the root causes. Mitochondrial dysfunction is one of those root causes of rapid aging that leads to all sorts of long-term health issues. By treating your mitochondria well, you can live a longer, healthier, more active life. And that is why, my friends, I'm super excited about MitoPure. MitoPure is the first and only clinically tested pure form of a natural gut metabolite called urolithin A that clears damaged mitochondria away from our cells and supports the growth of new healthy mitochondria. New science is showing that healthy mitochondria also improves immune function too. I've been using it for over a year now and at 63, I feel stronger and more energized than ever. Right now, Timeline Nutrition is offering my community 10% off MitoPure, which you can get in a capsule, powder, or protein blend at TimelineNutrition.com forward slash Dr. Hyman. That's T-I-M-E-L-I-N-E.com slash Dr. Hyman. That's D-R-H-Y-M-A-N. And use the code Dr. Hyman 10, just Dr. Hyman. 10, number 10. Hi, this is Lauren Fian, one of the producers of the Doctor's Pharmacy podcast. Over 90 million Americans have fatty liver disease, which is when your liver cells turn to fat cells and the liver can't do the job it's meant to do. When left unchecked and untreated, this condition can lead to reduced detoxification function, insulin resistance, and more. Non-alcoholic fatty liver is preventable and can be improved using diet, supplements, and herbs. In today's episode, we feature four conversations from the doctor's pharmacy about why the liver is so important in our modern lifestyle filled with toxins. Dr. Hyman speaks with Dr. Elizabeth Boehm about the purpose of the liver. She shares a related case study, and they discuss what to eat to support the liver. He also speaks with Dr. Robert Lustig about how to test for fatty liver and its role in insulin resistance. And finally, Dr. Hyman talks to Sean Stevenson about how inflammation damages the liver. Let's jump in. Fatty liver is when the liver cells, the cells in your liver, are uh, replaced with fat cells. So fatty liver just means that some of the cells in your liver have been replaced with fat cells. And so there's fat deposited within your liver. Why do we care? Because then that means your liver can't work as well because it doesn't have all those liver cells doing the job that the liver does, right? So the liver really helps our body detoxify, metabolize chemicals from the environment, metabolize our own hormones, you know, metabolize and get rid of toxins. And, and so, you know, we're, we are, we definitely don't want to have an underfunctioning liver. That's for sure. And this is the prevalence of fatty liver disease is, 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 is really, really high. And unfortunately it's increasing. 
Um, but about 90 million people in the U.S. have fatty liver disease. And so wow. that's, uh, it, it's, and it's increasing in this country. It's increasing worldwide, the amount of fatty liver we are seeing. So um, Liz, tell me more about, about a patient that we've had. Because I think, you know, some of the patient stories are really helpful and instructive and give us a sense of how we think, do things differently at the Ultra Bono Center you know, here in Massachusetts and Lenox. And, and what, you, what you found and what you were able to sort of help him with and, and how, how it all worked. Yeah. So I had a 50 year old gentleman who came in to see me and he was told by his primary doctor that his liver function tests, his ALT and AST were mildly elevated. And so he came in because he was frustrated with his weight. He wanted to lose some weight. He was about 25 pounds overweight. Um, and he just mentioned to me that his doctor had said his liver function tests were a little elevated and that they were going to be rechecking them in a few months. And so, um, you know, we really got a good detailed history from him and we got a sense of what he was, what his diet was like and, um, and, and, you know, what his, what his alcohol consumption was like, because, you know, that's one of the first things, of course, we think about with, you know, fatty liver or or these elevated liver function tests were like, okay, how much alcohol is this person consuming? And what was interesting to me about him was, you know, he was, he was, he was pretty moderate in his alcohol consumption. He was having about two glasses of wine a night. And so not for a man, you know, that kind of almost falls within what's considered moderation. So I was, um, you know, he was not a binge drinker. He was not overusing alcohol from the from the criteria we were talking about earlier, but I think the amount of alcohol he was consuming in in connection with his diet and probably his genetics and mm -hmm. many other things mm -hmm. like his microbiome that we've spoken about, you know, that all together was really impacting these liver functions for him. And so, um, you know, we noticed with his diet, it was, you know, not rich enough in vegetables, that's for sure. And, um, you know, really, uh, um, that was probably the biggest thing I would say with his diet. It was just, you know, devoid of a lot of vegetables. And you were talking about some of the things, supplements we use for helping the liver. You know, one of the things we think a lot about is sulforaphane, right? Which comes from your cruciferous vegetables mm -hmm. that helps and encourages the production of glutathione in the body. And so one of the things we really worked on with him is making sure he got some cruciferous vegetables every day, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, kale, Brussels sprouts, you know, really to help support, support, uh, the, uh, liver and help it heal, essentially. Um, we also had him take a break from alcohol. You know, we said, you know, let's just pull away alcohol for a period of time, really help that liver uh, calm down and, and let it give it some time to heal. And as I was mentioning earlier, we really can see the liver function tests go down pretty quickly for some patients. We can see if somebody did have fatty liver, you can watch it improve within a few weeks of cleaning up the diet and, and decreasing alcohol intake. So it's, it's, it can be, especially if it's not too far progressed, we can see changes pretty darn quickly. And, you know, so with him, we really focused on cruciferous vegetables, lots of the um, uh, sulfurous vegetables like onions and garlic. Mm -hmm. We gave him turmeric, mm -hmm. we gave him dandelion root to help, his, his liver and, and gallbladder work better, lots of green leafy vegetables. We made sure he was eating enough protein. You know, we know that protein is really important for the detoxification process in the body. We need to be mm -hmm. eating enough protein to, to, to do that. 
And so, you know, we, we made sure he was getting enough and, um, you know, foods that were rich in fiber to bind toxins, things like the beans and legumes and nuts and seeds, ground flaxseed. And I did, I gave him some N-acetylcysteine, some NAC. I gave him some liposomal glutathione and um, milk thistle. We put him on a really good multi that had methylated B vitamins in it. I gave him a little bit of an extra methylated B vitamin and really focused on those nutrient dense foods um, so that he wasn't wasting his calories because he was 25 pounds overweight and we needed to cut back on his on that weight. So we really needed to pull away those foods that were not nutrient dense. So, you know, things that are just people were are, are eating way too much of that are getting into our 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 diet that are not giving us all of the nutrients the body needs to work properly. Yeah, so incredible. So incredible. Um so I, I feel like we, you know, we we see this so prevalently. It's so misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed. It's such a huge impact on your long-term risk factors for all sorts of chronic illnesses, from heart disease to cancer to diabetes, and more. And and it's something that traditional medicine doesn't really deal with very well. And you might have been told your liver function tests are elevated, or don't worry about them, or they're not that bad, or you know, eh, whatever. You know, we'll watch it. Uh, that is just not a good idea. <laughs> and and I, I don't I don't think we are equipped in our traditional training with understanding how to actually figure out what to do for these patients with abnormal liver function tests. And I certainly was never trained. But the beautiful thing about functional medicine is that we have a way of evaluating the liver differently. We have a different diagnostic test we use. We have different therapy options. And we see tremendous improvements in liver function and quality of health. And it's not just about the liver. It's like when you treat what's going on with your patient, it's like everything gets better. His hormones get better. His liver gets better. He loses weight. His sex drive improves. You know, like everything gets better. His blood pressure goes down. And all of a sudden, you've got a person who's, instead of going on a trajectory towards increased risk of disease and death, to actually having a more vibrant, healthy life. So it's, it's, super, it's, it's super encouraging when you see these kinds of patients because they, they, they're really relatively easy to diagnose and treat, and yet traditional care just doesn't cut it for the most part. Yeah. I mean, within, within four months on the plan, his liver functions came down to totally normal. You know, after he lost, he lost uh, 10 of those pounds. And then uh, within a few more months, he lost another 10 pounds. Um, and, and, and his fasting insulin came down to normal. His, his liver function tests, his, his, um, his markers of inflammation in the body improved. And then eventually, you know, I've been seeing him for a while. So at this point he does have one or two glasses of wine a few days a week. Like he does drink some alcohol at this point. Um, he never, as I said, he never had a problem with alcohol abuse or alcohol overuse disorder. Um, it just was, he was drinking too much for his body. And so at this point in time, he's having a little bit of alcohol and doing, doing okay with that. And it's not causing a bump in those liver function tests or some problem with his weight or insulin resistance anymore. So mm -hmm. he, he did really well. So why, why is fatty liver a problem? I mean, so my liver is a little fatty, who cares? Like, why, why is it an issue for people? Why do we care to fix it? Other than the fact that you can get right. cirrhosis so, and die from um, liver failure. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's not a common Other thing, than but, that. <laughs> but, the, but, but, that, but that's a late stage thing. But okay. the, the other problems are not late stage and they happen to a lot of people and they're, they're unrecognized as related to fatty liver. Right. I mean, they happen, they can happen quickly. Fatty liver can, can develop uh, quickly. They know that, um, that within two weeks of heavy drinking, um, having one and a half to two ounces of hard alcohol every day for two weeks, you can start to see signs of fatty liver. 
um, which is, you know, that, that it can, it can develop very quickly. What's great to also understand within a lot of this research is that it can resolve quickly. So when, when somebody has fatty liver because of alcohol and you take them off of alcohol, that you can see resolution of fatty liver within, within four to six weeks. So, um, you know, that is, it's, it can, it can progress unfortunately quickly if we're not taking care of ourselves and then it also regresses when we start to make some shifts. And, you know, as you were mentioning, we're seeing this huge rise in fatty liver, not only because of alcohol, but because of how high blood sugar, high levels of insulin, toxins like glyphosate and all the other toxins you mentioned, um, medications that people are taking, all are putting stress on our liver and making it so then our liver can't do what it needs to do to detoxify. Uh, so it becomes this vicious cycle of we're, we're, we're inundated with toxins that are impacting our liver, but then the liver can't work as well. And so then we can't get rid of the toxins that we're inundated with. So it becomes a vicious cycle of, of, of having issues with our detoxification system in our body. And as, as we've spoken about before, the liver is such a critical organ within the body's natural ability to detoxify and handle all the toxins we're exposed to, you know, maybe, maybe we weren't, uh, um, we weren't, uh, put together to handle all of these toxins, unfortunately, that we're exposed to, but we, we do have this ability to handle toxins and we want to take care of our body so we can handle uh, the toxins that we are exposed to. And so it's really important that we take care of our liver. And so what is considered, you know, what's considered normal for alcohol intake, you know, for, for uh, men, it's less than 10 drinks a week. And for women, it's less than five drinks a week. And so we know that that problems with the liver can occur when we're drinking too much. So um, we see problems when, uh, when, when people are binge drinking or consuming more than 14 drinks a week for men or more than seven drinks a week for women. So I think it's important we also talk to our patients about what is moderation with alcohol? How do we take care of our liver? Both from a from all aspects of nutrition and lifestyle. So there was also an interesting um, study came out recently looking at cancer and alcohol and showing that there's a dramatic increased prevalence of cancer. Yes. Even a little bit um, of alcohol may actually increase the risk of cancer. So it's not just fatty liver, but it was a Japanese study with sixty three thousand adults where they looked at people who were drinking alcohol and, and it was it was a concern but but that aside there besides just the, the the overload on your liver besides just the the stress on your liver's ability to deal with all the normal toxins we have to deal with what happens when you have a fatty liver is it drives inflammation in the body and it's linked to heart disease to cancer to diabetes to even dementia and all sorts of things that we don't think necessarily related to a fatty liver so fatty liver is, is sort of an early warning sign and clue that there's something wrong in your body and, it, and it's causing a risk, an increased, dramatically increased risk of all these other problems. But that said, how do we know if we have fatty liver? You know, one of the first ways we find out is with general blood work. So if you do a, a metabolic panel, comprehensive metabolic panel on a patient, and if we look at these markers like the AST and the ALT, and if they're elevated, either high end of normal or or elevated above the normal range, you know that's something we really have to be thinking about: is is this is this fatty liver? Um, is this should we go on and do an ultrasound of the liver to see if we are seeing some fat deposition in the liver? 
And so that's one of the, the ways we start to see it uh, most frequently with our patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's other tests you can use, which I've, I've had personally, just because I've got I've sort of biohacking, kind of like to check everything. But you can do an MRI uh, and look at yeah. liver fat. You know, and it should be less than 2%. And many people have very, very high liver fat. I, I thankfully have less than 2%. You can oh, also, uh, they're actually also doing uh, fiber scans, which look at the fibrous content, the fiber, uh, sorry, the, the uh, scar tissue from the fatty liver, and they can use yeah. ultrasound scans. And those are good for measuring the degree. You can do liver biopsies. Uh, and I think, you know, what, what we see is, is really in functional medicine, a roadmap for healing the liver in ways that just doesn't exist within traditional medicine or conventional medicine. So talk about what, what are the ways that, you know, in addition to the testing we talked about, we'll look at insulin resistance, we'll look at lipid particle size, we'll look at inflammation, we'll look at a lot of things that traditional doctor wouldn't look at. What, what, are the, what are the beginning things we do from a dietary lifestyle and supplement perspective to reverse fatty liver? I mean, one of the first things, one of the first things we do, right, is of course we get a good, a good detailed history from our patients and try to get a sense of, of what's going on for them. Get, a, get an understanding of their timeline of their health. And that can help us find out what may be driving health problems in that person. So if there is some concerns about fatty liver, you want to get a sense of what their toxic load has been in their lifetime. What is their, what is their weight? What is their nutrition? What are they eating? Um, and, and what is their microbiome like? And so we can really evaluate all of that and, and get a sense of how best to help this patient that individual patient improve because we know that that for some people it may be more focusing on toxic load for somebody else it may be focusing more on alcohol intake for mm-hmm. somebody else it may be more they're eating way too many carbohydrates refined mm-hmm. sugars mm-hmm. soda you know coffee drinks uh, muffins and mm-hmm. and the, and not exercising enough and that whole metabolic syndrome process so so there's we want to really help focus the treatment plan on that individual patient. And I think that's what's so special about functional medicine is it's really looking for that underlying root cause for that underlying patient so that they can reach their optimal health. And, um, you know, we know that problems with the liver and fatty liver impact our immune system and how well we fight off infections. It, it impacts our um, how we can uh, how we can uh, digest food, metabolize food. It impacts our nutritional uh, state in our body. So there's so many reasons why we really want to look deeper. Absolutely, and I, I think in addition, you know, to the dietary stuff and getting rid of the environmental toxins that we can, sort of decreasing our overall toxic load. And we've talked about this in other podcasts, like the Environmental Working Group's Guide to How to Reduce Your Exposure to Toxins in Food and Household Cleaning Products and Personal Care Products. Um, but but there's also a lot we can do from a dietary perspective to upregulate those pathways in the liver that boost glutathione, all the brassica family, the onions and garlic, all the spices that we can use, uh, in, in the uh, even herbs that can be very helpful, like milk thistle and others to help improve the liver function. And then there's a whole bunch of nutrients that the liver needs to function. And uh, in fact, you know, you and I were both trained in traditional medicine, and you know, we worked in the emergency rooms. And you know, people come with Tylenol overdose. Um, we give them this quote drug called mucomist, right? <laughs> which, yep. uh, which is actually N-acetylcysteine. It's a supplement you can go over the counter. And what it does is it boosts glutathione and helps the liver to regenerate glutathione, which is what's depleted often with fatty liver and, 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 and tonal liver, uh, fat, liver damage from overdose. And, and so there's a lot of things you can do to boost glutathione. You can take glutathione, you can take N-acetylcysteine, lipoic acid, 
milk thistle, uh, curcumin. We use a lot of herbs. We use also the B vitamins, zinc, selenium, amino acids. And we do a lot of things to help the liver heal. And what's amazing is when you, when you use this cocktail of substances, things like milk thistle, lipoic acid, um, you know, N-acetylcysteine, glutathione, and so forth, livers will come back. And it's, it's striking to see the drop in liver function tests, the improvement in fatty liver content. Uh, and I encourage people to really think about, one, checking to see if they have it. Two, um, thinking about how to actually upregulate your, your lifestyle so that you, you can protect your liver. Hey everyone, Dr. Mark here. You know I'm always experimenting with the latest health advances and I found that tracking my blood glucose is one of the most insightful and accessible ways to understand my unique reactions to food. Poor glucose control is tied to all kinds of issues like weight gain, fatigue, type 2 diabetes, Alzheimer's, heart disease, and stroke. But it can be hard to know exactly how your body's reacting to the glucose in different kinds of foods because we're all different. That's where Levels comes in. It's a state-of-the-art app right on your phone that pairs with a continuous glucose monitor to show you how food and lifestyle factors affect your health in real time. With Levels, I realized I could make helpful tweaks in some of my favorite recipes. For example, adding extra avocado and a few less blueberries to my morning smoothie kept my blood glucose smooth and even, while too much fruit and too little fat sends me into a spike. Right now, Levels has a special offer for my audience if you head to levels.link forward slash Hyman. That's L-E-V-E-L-S dot L-I-N-K forward slash Hyman. I'm so excited to share that I have a brand new protein powder called Super Simple Grass-Fed Protein. If you follow my work, you know how critical protein is for building muscle, for optimal weight, and overall longevity. I like to get a good amount of protein in every meal, and sometimes that's hard with a busy schedule. That's why I make a protein-rich smoothie every morning featuring my Super Simple Protein made with really clean ingredients and also minimal ingredients from grass-fed beef protein. Right now, I'm offering the Doctors Pharmacy listeners 10% off. All you have to do is go to drhyman.com forward slash protein and use the code protein10. That's drhyman.com forward slash protein and use the code protein10. That's one and a zero. We all need to learn how to love our livers. They do a lot of work for us. They clean our blood. They keep us healthy. And when they don't work, we get sick. And people think that you know, unless you have liver failure, it's fine, which is not true. The liver needs a lot of support to do its work. And I know this personally because I had mercury poisoning and I had to take care of my liver if I wanted to get better. The liver requires a lot of support to do its job of detoxification. And also, unfortunately, we are in a sea of toxins. So what is the worst toxin now affecting the liver? You might say pesticides, you might say industrial chemicals, you might say heavy metals, and you would be wrong. <laughs> the biggest problem affecting the liver is sugar. It's the number one cause of liver disease today in America. In fact, it's the number one cause of liver transplants. Drew, I don't know if I ever told you this story, but I went to a conference on childhood obesity. It was maybe, maybe, maybe eight years ago. And there was a doctor there who was chatting with in the hall. I'm like, hey, what do you do? He says, well, I'm a, I'm a pediatric uh, 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 gastroenterological surgeon. I'm like, what, what are you doing here? <laughs> he said, oh, well, we do liver transplants. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? Liver transplants for what? He said, we're now seeing teenagers with cirrhosis of the liver from fatty liver, from eating sugar and soda. And I'm like, you're kidding. This is just horrific. We see kids as little as five years old with what we call non-alcoholic steatohepatosis and fatty, which just basically means fatty liver. 
and, 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 and eventually ends up with scarring the liver and cirrhosis. We think it's alcoholism. It's not. It's sugar and starch. So this is the biggest driver of, of a toxic liver. So the first thing you need to take care of your liver is really dramatically cut down or cut out starch and sugar. Obviously, alcohol is a problem. You next want to make sure you're avoiding as many toxins as possible. So get rid of the toxins in your food. Obviously, processed food for sure, additives, preservatives, but also pesticides and chemicals in food. I am on the board of the Environmental Working Group, and it's important to check which vegetables you're eating that are contaminated. For example, strawberries, which I love, the worst. I would never eat a non-organic strawberry. It's number one on the Environmental Working Group's list of most contaminated fruits and vegetables. You can Google it, ewg.org. You can find the Dirty Dozen list. Stay away from those. And then there's a clean 15. So if you don't eat organic avocados or bananas, it's okay, right? Save some money there. But but for sure, if you're having celery, if you're having nectarines, if you're having strawberries, you don't not you do not want to eat those if they're not organic. Next is clean up your house. You know, house your house is one of the biggest sources of toxins, both indoor air pollution from off-gassing of VOCs and chemicals, whether it's paint or furniture, carpets. I mean, there's so much plastics and chemicals out there. So try to use natural materials in your house. And also household cleaning products are, and, and if you don't, if you can't make sure you redo everything in your house, get an air filter and clean clean your air with a HEPA filter. Uh, we use one called Air Doctor, which is really great. Next, I would say you want to make sure you are using household cleaning products that are not making you sick. I mean, think about it. When you read, read these products, if ingested, go immediately to the hospital. You know, you don't want those in your house. So the Environmental Working Group has, what are the safe household cleaning products? Skincare products. They have a wonderful uh, database called Skin Deep where you can see what are you putting on your face? Your lipstick has got lead in it? Well, don't use it. If your topical creams have parabens and plastics in them, don't use it. You're absorbing it. If you wouldn't eat it, you shouldn't put it on your skin. Uh, and next, and next, you want to make sure, obviously, the fish and the meat you're eating has low mercury and toxins. And there's, again, guides on the EWG.org. So it's a great resource to lower your exposures. The next thing I would do is make sure you're eating foods that upregulate all your detox pathways. So the most important categories of foods are the brassica or cruciferous vegetable family, which is broccoli, collards, kale, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, that whole family. And the garlic and onions and family. And so I would eat those on a regular basis. For tonight, I'm having broccolini with garlic. So I do it pretty much every day. I make sure I have these foods. Next, you can actually start to do kind of more fancy stuff. You can have green juices, celery juice, watercress juice, cilantro juice. I had a, I had a guy who had heavy metals and he just juiced cilantro and had a cup of cilantro juice every day. And cilantro is a great detoxifier that helped his liver flush out the metals and he got rid of his metals. You also want to eat Herbs and spices like rosemary, curcumin, which like turmeric, which for curries. Uh, you want to make sure you have uh, things like rosemary, lemon, lemon peel. You know, we throw away the lemon peel, but if you get organic lemons, you can you can kind of. I like to to kind of uh, grate the lemon peel and put it in salads. It's great with like my kale, pine nuts, a lemon peel, lemon juice, olive oil, salt and pepper. It's delicious. Uh, that's why I like summer because we grow fresh kale. It's really good with a fresh kale. And then once you've kind of upgraded your diet, include all the phytochemicals, and I'm, I'm literally just like touching the surface. There's whole books written about this. I just got back from Icaria, which is in Greece, uh, one of the blue zones. And every morning, they and all day actually, they had this stuff called wild sage tea. And I'm like, wow, what is this stuff? Why do they live to be 100 years old? Why do they have the longest lived population in the world? I'm like, is it anything to do with the tea? Well, I think it does because when I looked up the tea and the phytochemical content, it was full of something called epigalactic catechins, which are these 
incredible compounds that are detoxifying, that are anti-inflammatory, that help your immune system, that activate all these longevity switches. In fact, there's some theory that, that and in fact, there's data on this, that green these catechins in green tea and also in this wild sage tea upregulate glutathione and help your body detoxify, which is the main detoxifier. Then after you've done all that, obviously exercise is important, making sure your gut's healthy is important, making sure you're sweating. I call it the three P's, poop, pee, uh, pee poop, and perspire. You, know, you want to make sure you're flushing your system, lots of water, lots of sweating, saunas. I mean, I did hot yoga. I was just in New York. I, I, do, I love hot yoga. Kind of flushes your system out, uh, moves your lymphatic circulation. All that's great for detox. And then lastly, you want to kind of beef up your supplement regimen. So a good multivitamin. And the reason, And the reason is, uh, oh, before I go to the supplements, I just want to kind of loop back to the food. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize how important amino acids are uh, from protein. So protein is so important for detoxification because a lot of the pathways, and I'm not going to bore you with all the fancy chemical names, but a lot of the pathways in the liver to get rid of toxins require amino acids. So you have to have a good complement of amino acids. And if you're just eating plant foods, you might not get those. So important to make sure you're getting enough of the right amino acids. And then, and then supplements. So what should you be taking? A good multi is important. But then there's a number of ones that are really key. Methylation, B12, folate, B6, very critical. Zinc, very critical. Selenium, important for the liver detoxification and boosting glutathione. Magnesium. So you want to make sure you have adequate levels of these nutrients. Then there's all the herbs like milk thistle and other compounds that can really be helpful. Curcumin, uh, artichoke. Uh, um, and there's a lot of these compounds, ellagic acid and pomegranate. So there's all these things that we can use as part of our diet to upregulate these pathways that are phytochemicals. And then there's, there's the supercharged ones like glutathione boosting supplements like N-acetylcysteine, which works so well the government wants to ban it, <laughs> which makes me laugh. You know, anything works too good, they want to turn it into a drug. I'm like, no, it's just like, it's just a supplement. And then uh, lipoic acid also is very important. And, and there's a host of other things, but those are, those are the main things I focus on. And, I, and I, I've learned to incorporate these. It sounds like a lot, but I learned to incorporate these into my life every day. This morning I had a green juice. I, I make sure I, I took a sauna today. I have one in my house, a, a steam. I, I'm having broccolini and garlic tonight for dinner. I'm taking my supplements with, with N-acetylcysteine, lipoic acid, and my methylating supplements. So it's, it's, I just don't work it into my life. It sounds like a lot, but once you kind of learn how your body works, you, you kind of just do it automatically. I want to talk about how we diagnose insulin resistance and, and, and you have in your book a way to self-diagnose because it's really yep. important because your doctors are missing 90% of it. They don't okay. get taught how to diagnose it. They don't, because it, there's no simple drug for it. So if there's no drug for it, why test for it, right? And, and you yeah, talk, right. you've just talked about a few major things that are, are a little bit confusing. One is you can be metabolically normal obese, meaning you're overweight, but metabolically normal. And right. I think that's a small number of people. You can be metabolically obese and normal weight, like the yep. people from India and China, they can right. be on their BMI, their body mass index normal, but they're still diabetic, right? right. And that's dangerous. Right. In fact, I've seen some studies that that may, may be more dangerous than being overweight and, and metabolically unhealthy. And, then, and then there's the, and then there's the, obviously the overweight, the metabolically obese, and obese, obese patients. So there's these different right. categories. Some of it's genetic, some of it's, you know, it has a lot of variations, but it, it, you, you kind of can't know until you test. So right. explain to us how uh, we can understand what's going on in our bodies. How do we test for this phenomenon that's driving all these diseases 
for which we're taking so many medications that aren't really working. They're just managing the disease and they're not actually treating the, the problem. They're treating the symptoms. Totally. The problem, of course, is that your doctor has access to all of this and you don't. And you need to, and they need to, but they don't understand it, which, you know, maybe you can teach your doctor what to do. How would that, how would that be, all you, all you audience out there? Okay, I love that. So, <laughs> all right. Sometimes doctors are a little, you know, shall we say provincial, and they don't necessarily, you know, listen to their patients, but they really should. If they listen to their patients, they'd be much better doctors. All right. Number one, you look at your waste. Now, your waste is a conglomeration of many things, but primarily visceral fat and liver fat. That's what determines your waist circumference. If you are a male and your waist is 40 inches or greater, the chances are you have visceral and or liver fat. And that probably means you have insulin resistance and you have mitochondrial dysfunction. If you are a female and your waist is 35 inches or greater, same thing. Now, that's the cheap way. Unfortunately, it's sensitive, but not specific. So there are other things that can, you know, cause you problems as well, like ascites and other things. But, you know, we're not pregnancy. Pregnancy. (laughs) Yeah, pregnancy. Thank you. Yes. Okay. So, which of course is insulin resistance also, you know, but that's for another day. Um, Then you start getting into the lab tests. Okay. What lab tests do you need to get? The most important lab test for determining insulin resistance is a fasting insulin. Now, doctors don't draw fasting insulins. I think it's the single most important uh, uh, lab test to draw, but they don't draw it. Why don't they draw it? Because the American Diabetes Association told them not to draw it. Now, why is it that I'm saying that this is the most important test that you yeah. have to run? And the Diabetes Association is saying, don't bother. How come yeah. they, we are so completely diametrically opposite? The answer is because I'm right and they're wrong. Now, here's why. <laughs> now, here's yeah, I why. Agree. I'm... Actually, by the way, I've been measuring this test for 30 years. And me it's too. Just astounding to me how important it is and how Nobody tests for it who's in the conventional medicine. That's right. So here's why the ADA says don't draw it. Two reasons, and they're both wrong and specious. Number one, they say, well, lab tests around the country for fasting insulin are not standardized. Yeah. Now, that is true. That is true. I don't argue that. And the reason is because cheap tests, cheap insulin tests do not distinguish between the insulin molecule and its precursor, the pro-insulin molecule. Now, pro-insulin is a pro-hormone, meaning it's before you get the active hormone. It's bigger. And the pancreas, beta, the beta cells in the pancreas make this thing called pro-insulin. And then there's an enzyme that cleaves the uh, C-peptide piece off and then you release the insulin. Now, when you're sick, when you're insulin resistant, your pancreas doesn't have time, okay? And yeah. that may actually even be a problem that you have a problem with that enzyme and that enzyme is called PC1 or pro-hormone convertase one. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you may, if you're sick, release both. You may release both pro-insulin and insulin. And so pro-insulin gets picked up in the insulin assay. So indeed, 
insulin assays around the country are not standardized. So yeah. the American Diabetes Association is right about that. But so what? If it's yeah, high, so you got a problem. Okay. Exactly. And, exactly. and they basically don't understand that. And that's, so that's, that's specious issue number one. Yeah. Specious issue number two. They say insulin levels don't correlate with obesity. That is also true. They correlate with metabolic health. Yes, and we just and heart disease you, and cancer and dementia. Exactly. And, yeah. Exactly. Okay. And we just told you that there are thin, sick people. Okay. So they're not registering on the scale, but then they don't know that they're sick. Yeah. So this is exactly why we need to be drawing fasting insulins is to figure that out. Yeah. So. Yeah. Fasting insulin. And by the way, you know, the other, the other thing I do, I, I would just say, this is going to add my two cents, because I've been doing this for a long time, too. And I started measuring not just uh, fasting insulin, but I measured a glucose tolerance test with insulin, almost on every too. patient who I thought right. even smelled that they could have had metabolic syndrome. And right. it was fascinating to see the data on this. You'd see people with, like, blood sugars that were perfect. Like, I had this one woman, like like a big apple. Her yes. fasting blood sugar was, like... 90 after uh, the two, 75 gram glucose, which is like, you know, two Coca-Cola worth of sugar. Her right. blood sugar went to like 110, never even right. went into glucose right. intolerance. But her fasting right. insulin was like 50 and it went to like 200 at one right. and two hours. So I found that right. very helpful. And fasting insulin uh, is, is, a, is probably the second stage. The first stage is a postprandial insulin that goes up, right? Yes, exactly right. So, in fact, we did oral glucose tolerance tests with simultaneous insulin levels on kids, published this back in the early 2000s, where we, this is where we realized where we had these two problems. One's called insulin hypersecretion, and those kids are fat but healthy, and this thing called insulin resistance, and those kids were fat and sick. And so even though they are both insulin problems, they are for different reasons and different yeah. uh, things in our diet cause each of them. So, uh, insulin hypersecretion can be genetic. Insulin resistance usually is not, mm. but it's very, very uh, fat, liver fat specific mm -hmm. and very much dietary um, uh, fixable. So we learned quite a bit by doing that. I don't need to do that anymore. And actually yeah. I'm retired anyway, so I'm not seeing patients, but... Um, but the point is, I can figure out from the other lab tests what's going on. So I don't yeah, have exactly. to do exactly. Exactly. I, I, me too. It's, a, I, it's actually, I, when I was in residency training, I had, a, I had a, a, a pulmonologist who was one of my preceptors. And he, you know, he taught us to read x-rays. And he goes, well, you know, this is this, this, this is that. And then he goes, and this is the Aunt Millie sign. I'm like, well, what do you mean? What's the Aunt Millie sign? Well, it walks like Aunt Millie. It talks like Aunt Millie. It looks like Aunt Millie. So it must be Aunt Millie. It's, it's, it's basically, if you look at the pattern, it's a pattern recognition. And if you look at right. the types of cholesterol, if you look at uric acid, if you look at you know, all these other phenomena, hormones, you can tell so much about what's going on. So besides the insulin fasting level, what else should people be measuring besides their waist and their fasting insulin? Right. So the next thing down the list is their ALT alanine aminotransferase okay now the problem with alt is not that's a liver test it's a liver test it's a test that tests for fatty liver okay it's again sensitive not specific 
But the problem with ALT is not the test. The problem with ALT is the interpretation. Yeah. Now, when I in 1976, when I entered medical school, the upper limit for ALT was 25. Today, you look at the lab slip, it's 40. It's 50. Or 50. And sometimes 50. Yeah. Yeah. So same test, but, you know, now double the, uh, the yeah. uh, upper limit of normal. How'd that happen? The answer is because everyone has fatty liver disease. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. why. Okay. The entire curve shifted to the right. And the way the lab determines normality is they do a whole bunch of tests on, you know, 10,000 or 100,000 people. Okay. And they get the mean and they get two standard deviations and they draw a line at those and say, okay, that's the upper limit of normal. Well, if the entire curve shifted, guess what? The upper limit shifts, but that doesn't mean it's normal. <clears throat> it just means that the patient didn't know they had a problem. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like liver. if you're a Martian landing an American today, it would be normal to be overweight and obese because exactly. that's what Americans are. It doesn't mean it's that, optimal. That's right. And so, in fact, uh, an ALT upper limit is 25. <clears throat> if you're African-American, an ALT upper limit is 20. Mm -hmm. So if you see an ALT above that, you got a problem. And you yeah. don't necessarily know why. And your doctor's looking at it and saying, well, you know, your ALT is 30, you know, it's below 40 or 50, you know, then no problem. And so your doctor's yeah. missing it. Yeah. So that's, that's the second test. And those are cheap. These are cheap tests. These are cheap tests. These are tests that are normally done on standard chem panels. Yeah. Uh, the next test is uric acid as David Perlmutter mm -hmm. and Rick Johnson, you know, are uh, espousing. Now, uric acid is the breakdown product of purines. So if you eat a lot of meat, you will get a higher uric acid. It's true. All right. And of course, everybody with gout knows this. Benjamin Franklin knew this. <laughs> okay. He wrote an ode to his gout many years ago. But it turns out sugar also increases uric acid. Now, how can red meat cause increased uric acid and sugar increase uric acid? Red meat and sugar don't look alike. Well, in fact, in the liver, they do. And the reason is because they both cause an increase in uh, ATP being converted to ADP, ATP adenosine triphosphate being converted to ADP adenosine diphosphate, which then goes down the breakdown pathway to uric acid. So uric acid is a proxy for both red meat and for sugar. In our society, it's actually a proxy for sugar. Mm. Now, uric acid is bad for two reasons. One, it inhibits an enzyme in your blood vessels called endothelial nitric oxide synthase or ENOS. This is your endogenous blood pressure lowerer, keeps your blood pressure down. And so when your uric acid rises, your blood pressure rises. And it is the reason why sugar is more important for hypertension than salt is. And when you actually look yeah. at the data. Yes, thank God you're saying that. Salt restriction. Sugar restriction actually causes a bigger decline in blood pressure than salt restriction does. Yes. Thank God. So I mean, I, I've seen this over and over that the cause of high blood pressure is not necessarily salt, it's sugar. And when insulin right. resistance is driving the high blood pressure in the first place. Indeed. Indeed. 
And, and insulin also prevents you from being able to excrete sodium. So the higher your insulin, the more sodium you hold on to at the kidney, which raises your blood pressure too. So by fixing the sugar, you're fixing the insulin resistance, you're fixing the uric acid, and you're lowering your blood pressure virtually overnight. Yeah, and, and that's why people who stop know. sugar and starch, like they just pee a lot because they lose the sodium because their insulin goes down and they start peeing a lot and lose a lot of fluid, which is water weight. But that actually is a good thing. That's a good thing. We showed in our 43 children study that these kids' blood pressures went down by five points in just 10 days with no change yeah. in sodium. Okay? Yeah, it's true. So, yeah, it's true. So, so that... So, um, that, so that's one reason why uric acid's important is because of the blood pressure thing. But the second reason uric acid's important is because uric acid blocks an enzyme that you're, are in your mitochondria, carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1, CPT1. This is an enzyme that regenerates the transporter carnitine. Carnitine is a transporter for fatty acids from the outside of the mitochondria to the inside of the mitochondria so that they can be burned for energy. If you poison that enzyme, you don't regenerate the carnitine. You can't transport the fat into the mitochondria. The mitochondria become dysfunctional. And guess what? You have buildup of fat in your cells because you can't burn it. So mm. uric acid's a bad guy in the story. And Sugar makes uric acid. So yeah. the problem with uric acid, just like the problem with ALT, is the interpretation. If you look at the yeah. lab slip, it yeah. says seven is the yeah, upper limit of normal. No. Wrong. 5.5. Yeah, yeah. Anything yeah. above 5.5, you got a problem. So, By the way, what should, fat, what should fasting insulin be? Because I, you know, I think we didn't talk about the number there, uh, but it's important. Because it's what your doctor is going to say is normal, and you is normal, and not do the same thing. Agreed. Agreed. Fasting insulin should be less than 10. Optimally, if yeah. you're an exerciser and all, you know, you might even get it less than five. Okay. If you're. Mine's less insulin, than two. <laughs> well, you are. Well, you, you are a paragon of virtue, Mark. Because <laughs> you practice. You well, no, I just don't eat a lot of sugar and starch and That's exercise. Right. It's not that That's hard. That's right. That's right. Well, mine's not as good. My, my, the last time I checked was 8.6. Okay. But it's below 10. Um, if you're fasting insulin's above 15, that's a problem. Okay. To be sure. All right. So fasting insulin, ALT, uh, uric acid. Okay. The next thing you want to check is your lipid panel. Now, yeah. the problem with your lipid panel is that everybody just looks at the LDL. The LDL yeah. is the least important thing on that lipid panel. I'm yeah. not going to say it's not important, but it's the least important. What's yeah. more important is the triglycerides because the triglycerides are much, much more uh, atherogenic than the LDL is. Which is amazing, right? Because our entire medical system, a trillion dollar pharmaceutical drug is focused on lowering LDL and not addressing triglycerides because well, you know why? There's no drug that really works to lower triglycerides that well, except fish oil and maybe niacin, which is vitamin B3. <laughs> right, exactly. We, the reason everybody focused on LDL is because we had a drug for it called statins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the reason, okay? Not because it was the really atherogenic particle, but rather yeah. because we had 
a medicine for it. And food is information. It's not just calories. When you eat, and, and it's different than if you burn a calorie in a, in a lab. I mean, if you burn a calorie in a lab, and 500 calories of soda and 500 calories of broccoli are exactly the same. They both release the same amount of energy, and that's defined as how much energy it takes to raise one liter of water, one degree centigrade. That's a calorie. And it's fine. When you eat them, it's very different because when you're eating the foods, they're going through all sorts of different mechanisms that change what happens. So they alter your microbiome, which changes your weight. You literally can swap out bugs from a thin mouse to a fat mouse, and that fat mouse will lose weight because of the thin making microbiome, right? So you're feeding the microbiome, you're driving inflammation or cooling it off, which drives weight gain. You're regulating hormones like insulin, testosterone, estrogen by what you eat. You're regulating your mitochondria, which really about how much energy you burn. You're regulating all these various factors that uh, are, are so critical for weight regulation, your brain chemistry, your hormones. And you write all about this and eat smarter, which is why it's such a smarter book because <laughs> you you actually address these these scientific issues that still are staggering to me that that most traditional doctors nutritionists academicians and and uh, nutrition societies and the government all don't buy into and it's it's really honestly i i, I hate to say this but I, a lot of it has to do with the fact that the food industry wins by all calories being the same because then you can have a hundred calorie soda or a hundred calorie bunch of blueberries and there's no difference but right. that's just absurd even a fifth grader or a kindergarten kid would understand that you know 500 calories of soda and 500 calories of blueberries are pretty different when you eat them and it's your fault it's your yeah, fault. yeah it's your fault it's your fault you're weight you're overweight right because if you if you just ate less and exercise more everything would be great manage those calories yeah and you'll lose weight and yeah. the, Good luck the with entire that. paradigm <laughs> is really skewed and i got to reiterate this because when you just mentioned the research in mice, for example. Now we have paralleled research in humans. This is cutting edge data that's getting out to the world right now. And one of the fascinating studies, this was published in Cell, they, was looking at, they looked at what's happening in, in mice depending upon their microbiome cascade. And they found that spe there's specific, I'm sorry, specific, I'm so excited, specific <laughs> bacteria that is found in mice that actually reduced the amount of calories that they were absorbing from the food that they were eating. Mm. Now, you take that piece of data and marry that with the human data that we have now. And this was conducted at Weis the Wiseman Institute of Science. And what they did was they were taking, uh, this is well known right now, guys, but I want everybody to get it today, that when folks, when, once our bodies start to venture into being overweight and obese, our microbiome changes massively. And now we know that there's a, a kind of a bacteria cascade that is associated with being overweight. Mm -hmm. All right. It's like a fingerprint. All right, yep. it's a very unique kind of dynamic thing, our, all of our met metabolism, but mm. there is a very specific uh, spectrum that you see when folks start to become obese. And what they did was they took these human fat bacteria associated with obesity and put them into lean mice. And then the mice inherently gained weight, yep. their insulin sensitivity went down and they gained yep. body fat versus taking the bacteria from a healthy human subject and putting it into the mice and the mice continue to stay lean. Changing the bacteria in our bodies has a massive impact. And one of the other studies took two, took a set of twins, all right? And all they did was they had them on the same calor uh, calorie reduced diet, but one of them had a microbiome associated with obesity and one had a microbiome associated with leanness on the mm. same diet. And they're twins Wow! on the same diet. 
The one with the microbiome associated with obesity continued to gain weight while the other one didn't. So That's this incredible. is real stuff. That's so incredible. what do we do to fix this is where we really got to put our focus. I agree. And I think, you know, I just want to sort of summarize a few key elements here that, that are worth underscoring. And then I want to talk about the three major things that cause problems when you want to try to lose fat. So if you eat ultra processed food, by the way, it's 60% of our calories. It's most of what Americans eat, all the starch, sugar, processed food, anything sort of made in a factory that's not from real ingredients. One, if you're eating it, even if it's the identical same calories as whole food, your metabolism is slower. That's what you just said. Two, in another study, they found that if you let people eat ultra processed food compared to regular whole foods, they'll eat 500 calories more a day. So they'll eat more and they'll be hungrier. And three, it changes your microbiome in ways that increase bad bacteria that cause weight gain. And of course, there's a lot of other things that drive inflammation, hormone and appetite issues, which are really the, the things that really you talk about that are the three major things when it comes to fat loss. So let's dig into those three things, inflammation, hormone dysfunction, and appetite problems, which is, you know, I mean, I had a, I had a, a doctor call me about one of his patients for advice. And he's just, this guy really exercises a lot of time. You, you know, really uh, focus on eating healthy, but he's just hungry all the time. And I'm like, well, it's probably because of what he's eating that's driving his brain chemistry and his immune system and all the mechanisms that drive hunger. So we have to change that. And it's not that hard to do. Yeah. So tell us about those three things. Absolutely. And the, the thing that I really wanted to, to, to usher in and bring to the forefront, because it sounds the most like ghostly, it sounds like Casper the ghost, like it's not even a real thing, is inflammation and how inflammation has an impact on your body composition. And the data exists, it's just that a lot of folks don't know about it. And the way that it really manifests when we're talking about inflammation is that it has this very uh, detrimental impact on our organs that are related to our body's production and utilization of our fat, kind of fat loss related hormones. So namely, let's take our liver, for example. Your liver is incredibly important in regulating your metabolism. You know, mm. when we're talking about mm. a relationship with how it manages mm. insulin, even the production of fat mm. takes place in your liver too. The storing of glycogen can take place in your liver. You know, if your liver is, if your body's overburdened by glucose, your liver can literally convert that into fat right there on the spot. Mm -hmm. And so if something is damaging your liver, it's going to inherently damage your, your endocrine system and your process of metabolism. So inflammation, and I've just kind of shared some of the data in the book, um, damaging your liver. And what, this is one of the most fast growing issues in our country is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Yeah, and This is well, really a kind of chronically in, inflamed situation taking place in our liver. And also- how do, we, how do we get fatty livers? Because I think people should know, we, we go to fancy restaurants and they give you foie gras, which is French for fatty liver. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, as, as how do they get the ducks to be like that? And how do they get us humans to have 90 million Americans with fatty liver? Everybody should know by now. Very simple. The fastest way to, to, to damage your liver and to create that fatty liver, when it, by the way, it's called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease because we associate it with alcohol, but sugar. Sugar, absolutely. Sugar, sugar starch, flour, it's, it's so bad. It's so bad, particularly your liver has to take on your liver has to take on the brunt of it because your liver is really even the name live, er, live. Right. 
it's responsible for so much. Like every minute, it's filtering your entire blood supply. You know, it's so important. That's right. But to take this one step further, and I'll just drop this little nugget so we can move on to the other topics. But also, the master regulator, often referred to, of course, you know, I've even taught this in my conventional university setting, but your hypothalamus, mm. all right? Your hypothalamus is one of the major regulators and communicators with your thyroid, with your liver, with your adrenals, all the organs related to fat loss and fat storage. The governing kind of master gland is called the master gland is your hypothalamus. That's in and your brain. Data, right. And now we've got data that it, this new term, neuroinflammation, inflammation yes. specifically regarding the function of your hypothalamus can damage what's happening with your metabolism. But nobody's talking about that in these cookie cutter diets that you need to address the inflammation in your brain in order for you to lose weight, right? So Completely. these are all, and the beautiful part is it's possible. It's not just possible, it's probable when you have the right information and we avoid the things that create the inflammation. And namely, you just mentioned sugar, but we go through a whole uh, subset of the different things. Yeah, so and in functional medicine, category. we also look at, you know, food sensitivities and environmental toxins and the yeah. microbiome and all, there's so many things that drive inflammation. And if you're overweight, you're inflamed. And for those listening, yeah. you know, think, oh, you know, I'm a few pounds overweight, a little extra belly fat, you know, maybe I need to lose 10, 20 pounds, or maybe you're over more overweight or obese. You should really pay attention to what Sean's saying, because right now during this COVID pandemic, what we're finding is those people who are overweight or obese or have even a little bit of extra fat are much more likely to get sick, much more likely to end up in the hospital, the ICU, and to die from COVID-19 because of poor metabolic health. And what's so beautiful about the body is that you think, oh my God, I've taken years and years to get here. Within a couple of weeks, you can change all of that. You might not lose all the weight in a couple of weeks, but you can change your inflammation markers, your hormones, your brain chemistry, literally in a couple of weeks of changing your diet. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. One of the best ways you can support this podcast is by leaving us a rating and review below. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Hyman. Thanks for tuning into The Doctor's Pharmacy. I hope you're loving this podcast. It's one of my favorite things to do and introducing you to all the experts that I know and I love and that I've learned so much from. And I wanna tell you about something else I'm doing, which is called Mark's Picks. It's my weekly newsletter. And in it, I share my favorite stuff from foods to supplements to gadgets to tools to enhance your health. It's all the cool stuff that I use and that my team uses to optimize and enhance our health. And I'd love you to sign up for the weekly newsletter. I'll only send it to you once a week on Fridays. Nothing else, I promise. And all you have to do is go to drhyman.com forward slash picks to sign up. That's drhyman.com forward slash picks, P-I-C-K-S, and sign up for the newsletter. And I'll share with you my favorite stuff that I use to enhance my health and get healthier and better and live younger, longer. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their Find a Practitioner database. It's important that you have someone in your corner who's trained, who's a licensed healthcare practitioner, and can help you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.